Hey everybody, welcome to Florida Basketball Hour. On this week's show, we will discuss Florida's loss at Tennessee, get into Florida's win at Georgia, puts the Gators to 19-11 and 11 ahead of Senior Day. Uh, in the O-Dome Saturday at Kentucky, Kerry Blackshear, the lone senior technically, could be the last game for Scotty Lewis, could be the last game for Dante Bassett. Um, Dante Bassett's going to graduate with honors. Uh, high honors, I think, in, in, the, in the spring, which is fantastic. Really happy for him. We're going to take some listener questions. It's a fun show. Uh, we hope you guys enjoy it. You know, this is the fun time of the year in our sport. This is March. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Florida Basketball Hour and Yoga Blackman Saturday Down South with Eric Fawcett, GatorCountry.com. We're going to talk about two games, um, a loss at Tennessee, a Tennessee team that's, that Rick Barnes has playing pretty well, um, maybe because they got a lot of confidence by beating Florida, who had been playing really well. Uh, and then we'll talk about tonight's uh, big win in, in Athens uh, on the back end. We just like to go chronologically. I think the Florida-Tennessee game and the Florida-Georgia game have some similarities, though, Eric, in that this trend of Florida starting game slow has continued and, and quite honestly, is a little concerning ahead of, like, one-game seasons. Yeah, it's just uh, – it's, it's very concerning because Florida has shown that they can play from behind this year, uh, whether it's uh, where they have a are, are stuck 13 early like they were against Georgia or – uh, obviously they, they played from behind for some, uh, you know, in the first Georgia game and, and some other big comebacks. But I mean, you've just got to think that, that sometimes those efforts aren't going to be enough. And obviously against, uh, against Tennessee, ultimately they just weren't able to, uh, I, I know it was more the second half comeback, not, uh, not as much that, uh, uh, that opening lull, but that obviously played a big role. And you, you just wonder when you're playing in postseason, like how many of those efforts c- can you really have? And, uh, are, are they, are you going to be able to still keep that magic going? Or are you going to have some of those run out? So uh, especially to see, you know, like, like Tennessee is, uh, is playing good basketball right now. Uh, Georgia, maybe not as much. And that's, that's, you know, two games uh, that Florida started slow, but uh, yeah, I know we're, we're talking Tennessee at first, but uh, uh, yeah. What were your kind of thoughts on, on how they, they started slow in that one? Well, I have, I let's stick to the first half because I have a thought about the comeback, which, takes a little luster off of it. And I want to talk about that because I think it's interesting. But, um, you know, I thought that I was a little confused by timeout usage and a little confused by what Florida was trying to accomplishment, accomplishment, right, Neil? What Florida was trying to accomplish with their plan. Like what was their plan to attack Tennessee defensively especially two, three days after White has a press conference where he talks about Tennessee's ball pressure and their ability to extend offenses. And then it looked like Florida had never seen it before. So let's start with that. Yeah, it's, it's true. I, I thought that they, uh, they had big problems. And I, I think that obviously Florida just had some, some really good offensive performances the last couple of games. But a lot of it was just like Keontae Johnson getting by anyone anytime he wanted. And that will obviously make any offense you run look a lot better. Uh, then you go to this Tennessee game where, uh, you know, Eve Pond's one of the few players in the country that has the athleticism and the strength to, to stay with Keontae Johnson. You know, he just sat on his right hand and, and didn't allow him uh, to get those just like easy straight line drives that he's gotten in, in other games. And uh, Josiah Jordan James, he did uh, he did well to do that at, at times, too. And 
Uh, I just feel like they weren't really getting Keontae Johnson off off some of those curls and and some of those uh, uh, some of those attacks. That way, it was just a little bit of like you know the ball would get get swung to him. And uh, in these last couple of games where Florida's offense has looked really good, you know Keontae Johnson is just you know you just get the ball swung to him and he would drive by a guy. But that's uh, that wasn't the case against Tennessee. I just thought Tennessee was was really prepared for Florida. Uh, uh, Tennessee is another team that. I think they their staff does a really really good job of, of, of preparation. Uh, they are an analytically savvy uh, coaching staff. I, I'm aware of that and had some conversations with uh, with some people around there. So and I would say that just the way that they defended Florida, I thought uh, just showed a team that was does very prepared for what Florida was trying to do. Yeah, I, I thought it was with the notable exception that Kerry Blackshear pretty much got whatever he wanted, and and it was it was frustrating to see Kerry in, in foul trouble because when you look at his line, it was actually his, his second most efficient performance of the season from just an offensive rating standpoint. Uh, you know, he did come up a rebound short of the double double, but you know, can't get the four fouls. Like Florida needed him on the floor. Yeah. I mean, you just see with, uh, with any data, with any eye test, Florida is a better team with him on the floor as much as, uh, you know, I've got trouble with his with his defense, and and I did think that he defended defended fairly poorly against Tennessee, and especially in that first half. Uh, his offense, what he brings to the offensive side, uh, is valuable enough that uh, that Florida is much much better with him on the floor. Uh, I I mean, I've been someone who throughout Kerry Blackshear's foul trouble this season, I I really haven't been like someone to really say that he's gotten a tough whistle. I I actually think a lot of the fouls he he picks up are. Uh, are, are his his fault and he just you know legitimate fouls he's getting called for oh man the, I, I do think that this might I, I against Tennessee I think that that might have been the worst uh the worst I felt about the whistle he got uh, I yeah. don't know if you had any thoughts about it but uh but that was tough because you know he is going to pick up some fouls that are him being a step slow or uh a little bit off balance trying to protect the rim like he is going to have those fouls so when he gets some of those cheap ones that, that he got against Tennessee uh yeah he's he's going to get sent to the bench and that's that, that hurt. Was it the Arkansas game where he had like four offensive fouls? Yeah, I think, I think so. So I thought that I thought those whistles were harder than the Tennessee ones, at least two or three of them. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I'm with you. There was there was one call on him. I don't know. Was it the second foul where he was like purely vertical and just played really good defense, and they called him? I mean, it was wild how I I don't know. I thought that the officiating in the Florida Tennessee game was a little uneven. Um, but you know, I say that and it was only 18 to 15 in the foul disparity. Yeah. I, I guess just like when you see that, that Tennessee is playing that like flex offense where, uh, John Fulkerson is just like uh, playing right guard and just uh, clearing <laughs> guys out to get those cross screens for, for pawns and, and James, I just, to see some of those things go and then get, uh, kind of some of the the rebounding fouls on Florida like it was it, it was one of those things where I just think the, the style of play that Tennessee played would not be conducive to the foul count being even equal like yeah like Florida's style of play is just not such that they are going to pick up many fouls and and Tennessee's one of those teams that which is like honestly uh, a style of play that I think there might be something to it and I've talked to a couple of coaches not at Florida at other programs about it that like there really might be something to just like committing 50 fouls a game, knowing that the refs just simply won't call them all. Uh, and I don't know, like it, it's probably not a positive way to look at basketball, 
But I see a game like that against Tennessee and you see that the fouls ended up pretty even anyways. You're just like, man, why not be more aggressive and, and do that? Because I, 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 I did think it was a tough whistle, which is like not something we normally uh, get into de- too deep on the podcast. But yeah. There's usually much better things to talk about. But yeah, I mean, hey, in a tight game uh, uh, where it's a couple of possessions, uh, I, I really think it could have swung differently if the, the whistle was different. Yeah, combo minutes for Blackshear and Nimhard were 57. So they are under 30 combined um on average that hadn't happened much this season that was only the third time that that had happened uh and nimhart and johnson scored eight collective points it was the first time that collectively um they were under double figures they were at 10 against florida state so um or sorry not florida state uh they (laughs) they were 10 against utah state but still um florida you know probably doesn't function quite as well, not even probably, Eric, when Nimhart and Johnson are bottled up. Did you think that was kind of the Tennessee scout, like let's make Kerry Blackshear and, and Noah Locke, who, who sort of came out of his funk, uh, beat us? Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I definitely think the way that they played Scotty Lewis was saying like, hey, let's let Scotty Lewis try to beat us, uh, uh, just with the way that they kind of were, were letting him drive the ball and uh, when he did try to use, use a ball screen and, and Noah Locke too, who was able to, uh, to make some good plays off of it. Uh, uh, I just thought that uh, they were just definitely willing to let, let those guys uh, kind of be the decision makers and they did not want Nemhart doing it. And uh, right. Kerry Blackshear, obviously he was able to finish really well, but uh, I, I actually thought that uh, it was almost one of, like, I really think this might've been the most impressive offensive game for Blackshear just because I actually thought that Tennessee guarded a lot of Florida's actions to, to get post-ups for Blackshear uh, super, super well. And it like, so it wasn't just like, Hey, let's design this, this post up for Blackshear. They dump it inside. He posts up and gets a bucket. A lot of those actions were kind of denied. And it, it was honestly like a little bit more in the, the flow of things. And uh, for that reason, I thought it was really impressive, but uh, no, I really do think that the, uh, the scout was uh, let's try to take away Kerry Blackshear. Uh, they, you know, weren't really able to do that a ton, but it was uh uh, it was also let's take away Nemhard and let's take away Johnson, especially Johnson's kind of right hand where they really sat on it. And uh, they were able to, uh, to obviously slow down uh, Johnson and Nemhard. Yeah, I thought in the second half, which we can go to, Kerry did a good job of getting to the elbow and initiating offense from there, which, um, you know, is something that we talked about at length in the summer. He's, he's effective doing. It's not just a post-up player. So Florida had some good actions for that. The one thing that surprised me, and I wanted to kind of get your take on this, and I really thought about it, for far too long to think about a basketball concept on a plane ride back from Los Angeles. But um, I would have maybe gone with Trey Mann. I, I imagine it was about defense, but Trey Mann played 19 minutes. Scotty Lewis played 38. Like I would have wanted a little more balance there just because Trey was so good at getting to the rim. And there's one of those areas where I thought foul disparity was kind of weird because you mentioned all the clear outs that Fulkerson had where like they'd get Josiah Jordan James downhill and it seemed like he got a favorable whistle a couple times, um, shoots four free throws. Trey man shoots zero and had like three finishes at the rim through contact. <laughs> yeah. He had a couple of those where, uh, especially, I mean, the one he finished where, yeah, uh, yeah. I just thought he got raked and, uh, and finished <laughs> wrong, I, I definitely would have, uh, I, I definitely thought that Trey man should have been on the floor more. And uh, again, I just look at, uh, I, I just look at a lot of the lineup data with, with Scotty Lewis's on and off numbers. I, I use also just what I see in, in the eye test. And I just, 
I, I just don't see him as someone who should be on the floor for 38 minutes. I, I just, uh, especially where, uh, yeah, where he was, he was getting dared to shoot and he just wouldn't take threes. And I understand that because he has been a, a streaky shooter and, uh, and that just really didn't help Florida's offense at times. And, and while I think he is a good defender and, and uh, I thought he actually did defend quite well against, against Tennessee better than, better than he normally does. But I, I don't think it's just at the point where uh, you definitely need to sacrifice. Like, like there was definitely just stretches where Florida's uh, lack of ability to generate offense was, was their undoing and, and a big reason why they lost. And, and I just think that having uh, having another ball handler there to, uh, to get things moving when, when it got forced out of Nemhart's hands, which, yeah. which it was, uh, I really think it would have worked. So uh, and again, I thought just man did play positively when he was in there, and yeah, that just that, that definitely would have been a change that I would have liked to see. I just don't, um, yeah, I just uh, there's no data that I look at, or I guess you know my my eye test as well that would suggest that Scotty Lewis is someone who needs to be in the the 38 minute range. Uh, the only reason that I would say maybe he should be a, a game where maybe Keontae Johnson is is out with foul trouble, but I mean I think Keontae Johnson played like 40 minutes or. 38 or 39 as well. So it was, uh, there's a lot of those guys together. And uh, I, I do think, like you said, it was probably, especially defending against that flex offense that Tennessee runs where they're going to generate a lot of switches. Likely you, you do want your, uh, some of your bigger wings, like, like Lewis and Johnson on the floor at times. But again, there was just times where the offense was getting bogged down and I would have loved to have man out there more. Yeah. I was a little bothered by, I guess, I guess I've kind of hit on a bunch of things that bothered me, but yeah, I mean the start uh, rotations, um, felt like man really jump started the offense in the second half would have liked to see him. Now he played a lot more in the second half, but I would have liked to see him earlier. Uh, I thought timeout usage would have been good, especially when they knew that that pressure defense was coming. So I didn't think the best day for the staff, to be quite honest, I thought, um, the Florida defended pretty well, uh, maybe as well as they have on the road all year, which, you know, that's pretty encouraging despite the fact that, you know, John, Fulkerson had a blinder and sometimes that happens. What can you do? Uh, and you know what, Eric, I think here's my hot take, a rare FBH hot take. I think Florida wins the game. If Fulkerson doesn't make a, his first career three with two guys in his grill fading away from the basket. Like I felt like Florida had kind of seized control. Oh, I'd agree with that. I, I think that that was the huge, I don't want to say turning point, but it was definitely like, like three points in that scenario and Florida's rolling. Uh, that's, that's huge. And uh, yeah, I definitely think Florida wins if that shot doesn't fall. I, I, I not even, and I mean, I'm not even like hugely about like, Oh, it was such like a, a backbreaker, like shot in the heart three, which like, you know, it was to an extent when someone like that heaves up the prayer and falls. But I mean, just three points at, at that junction of the game was, uh, was huge. And um, I, I do have to point this out uh, when you were talking just about, some of the, the coaching decisions. Um, I, I will have to say uh, I would in all of, uh, in all of conference play, when I've been tracking this, this was the most, this Tennessee game, which I do know they lost was the most savvy. The, the staff has been in terms of playing lineups that are good. Okay. Uh, like, as you know, on the podcast, I've been you know pointing out where Florida has been on a bad stretch and it's been a lot of times because uh, lineups have been, been quite poor uh, going through the lineups for this one. Uh, they actually, this was, this was the most sound, I would say, uh, analyzing the data that was used or the line of data that was used. Um, this was the most savvy that the, the staff has been. And, uh, uh, it, which was also impressive considering the fact that Omar Payne didn't play because a lot of the best lineups use him. 
and they were still able to use some uh, some positive lineups. So, uh, you know, obviously they still lost, and that shows that you know it's playing good lineups isn't isn't everything. Uh, but I also uh, do have to point out that that was uh, something positive. I thought the uh, the staff did, and even though you know there were some other things that, like you, I wasn't super happy about. I, I did think that uh, them sticking to some of their better lineups was a uh, was a uh, was a positive. Yeah, I mean, they're, it seems like they're more comfortable with dropping the pick and roll coverage and stationary kind of stationary defense from Jason Jatobo a la Johnic Bunu right now, right? And like. There, that's a different variety of rim protector, like with the wide body. Um, although, you know, Jason's a little more nimble than I thought he was, to be quite honest. I don't know if it's that he lost the, oh. the weight, but it, yeah, but I, I feel like there's something to that, Eric. And that's, that's a big reason for the pain minutes drop off because pain has been, as we've talked about at length, like it's just not figured it out on pick and roll defense yet. Yeah. So I, I'm glad you brought this up. Uh, this isn't up yet, obviously, Gator Country. It's, I've been working on it for, for quite a long time. It has taken some good – just a lot of hours. But uh, <laughs> what, I, what I did for, for an article that's probably going to be up Friday because uh, I still have some, uh, some work to do and I've got to input the, the Georgia game data. But uh, I've started to try – I went through and I tracked every pick and roll that Florida has defended this year and charted how they defended it and charted how each Florida big man uh, has, has played against it. And uh, – while this is spoiling a little bit of the uh, the good stuff, but I, I hope you read the article when it's up anyways. Um, I was very surprised at um, how well Jatobo has defended when hedging uh, because there's definitely some plays where like I, I see it very vividly in my mind where uh, he had to hard hedge and Florida's defense just got cut up because of it. And there right. are a couple plays like that, but those probably stuck in my head a little bit too strong because really Jatobo has actually defended in the pick and roll um, really, really well. And the numbers back that up. And uh, it surprised me a little bit. But again, when I go back and watch every possession, every pick and roll Florida is defended, which is like, um, you know, about 400, um, in case you're wondering. Jatobo um, <laughs> uh, is actually, he's, he's looked really good. And, and Omar Payne has had some wonderful moments, but he has had some, some poor moments. So um, going to your point about uh, how those different guys have defended, I will have an article up on uh, likely Friday for, for you to read about that. I'm pumped to ha- I'm pumped to see it. This is going to be excellent. This is big. Um, like I'm actually really excited for this. We'll nerd out a little <laughs> bit. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I mean, an L for Florida. People are mad. Um, again, road teams have won a lot of games. You know, it's frustrating because Florida played really well, and it's even more frustrating because of things and how kind of things broke out in the league tonight because. Had they been able to snag that win, the two seed would be locked up before Kentucky coming to town, which, you know, that would be really nice to be 20 and 10 with Kentucky coming in. They're really just playing for seeding. And now Florida's playing for SEC tournament seeding. I think they're probably pretty comfortable with their position in the field, barring like a quarterfinal loss in Nashville. And then maybe things get dicey. Like maybe, I don't know. Um, but I feel like they're going to make the NCAA tournament after tonight's win in Athens. Uh, a good performance in the second half. Did you, what were your thoughts on the first half? Uh, sorry, are we moving on to, to Georgia here then? Yeah, we're moving on to Georgia unless you oh, had right. any, anything to say no, else. No, no, sorry. Okay. <laughs> I was, I was, I was trying to load up some data while you're making that transition. I wasn't listening. Well, no, oh, no, 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 you're good. I, I was just talking about the frustrations yeah. of, of the seating situation. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And, and so now like, I feel like the team's in the NCAA tournament, Eric, I just don't know 
you know, I think Florida's still sort of playing for seeding, but they're also importantly playing for their seeding in Nashville. Yes, but uh, yeah. So moving on to moving on to Georgia, a game that uh, certainly it was a loss that would have uh, uh, really changed the uh, the perception of Florida State's NCAA tournament hopes. So uh, it's good they got the win. But yeah, in the first half, I mean, you've got to probably start with Georgia making um, seven other shots to start the game, uh, uh, which is something that's uh, I'm interested in, in your thoughts because it was actually kind of interesting where it was a mix of there was a couple plays where I thought Florida defended very poorly um most notably there was one where the ball got passed to uh to the wing andrew nemhard had a really really bad closeout uh and then noah Locke was in a help side position but had zero interest in contesting the shot and they gave up a layup because of it so that was like you know that was on nemhard for a bad closeout um but it was also on on to me you, you know noah Locke made very little effort despite being in a good position uh made very little effort so that was one where i was like I was, you know, that was that was a poorly played defensive possession by any way you want to look at it. Uh, but there was also some uh, some jump shots that Georgia was making where I was like, you know what, these are not going to keep falling. And you know, ultimately, Georgia's offense did come down to uh, come down to earth, and that's why Georgia lost. And and Florida's defense ended up looking pretty good. But uh, yeah, I think you've got to start with that uh, those first seven shots that Georgia made. So uh, I'm interested if you have any uh, any opinions on on the way Florida was defending or, or anything related to that uh, that quick run by Georgia. Yeah. Well, look, uh, two things. Yeah, I thought Florida again second consecutive game. I didn't like the way that they came out energy wise on the road. I thought it was even more problematic tonight, Eric, because, uh, and we've seen this with young teams that, that John Calipari has brought to Gainesville. Um, so I don't think it's unique to Florida's culture, uh, but senior, senior night games, right. Um, there's a level of, of emotion on the other sideline. Uh, and in George's case, three seniors plus Anthony Edwards all playing their last game in Athens, you know, kind of a, I expected Georgia to be inspired and they're playing their rival. So the building is more full. Uh, you know, I just thought Florida's energy was not good. Uh, yeah, it wasn't. I also didn't like what Florida was doing offensively to start the game. And that certainly didn't help their energy. And that was going uh-huh. four out and one in and, and trying to pound the ball into Blackshear every possession. Uh, uh, I just think that that was like, there was just times where Florida was moving the ball around the perimeter and Georgia was very content to let them do it, but it was all just looking for the end goal of, of getting into Blackshear. And there was even a couple moments where, uh, you know, you can like, you're just, you know, you teach basketball players to do you ball gets swung, they catch it, they give a little pump fake. And there was times where Georgia was just flying at Noah Locke at a pump fake because they respect the jump shot. And he just wasn't looking to drive off it because that wasn't, you know, that's not a strength of his. And they also, presumably, he knew that he was the, he was just trying to get the ball inside of Blackshear. And same thing as, uh, as Scotty Lewis, the ball gets swung to him. He'd pump fake. Guys would fly out and then two hands in the air, both feet off the ground, and he would be not really looking to drive. And, and I thought that that was why Florida just got in some late clock situations early. Uh, and also, I just didn't look great. I, and I just, uh, I, you know, I understand wanting to establish Blackshear, but I just thought that, uh, uh, yeah, I just thought doing it over and over and over again when it wasn't working and uh, when Georgia's scoring on the other side, it just it wasn't a style of play that I really felt energized the Gators. I mean, it's one thing if you're you're getting the ball moving, guys are cutting off the ball, getting active that way, but this was, you know, four guys at four spots moving the ball around trying to jam it inside, and uh, ultimately it didn't work. Yeah, no, um, you know, I agree. Agree with, uh, agree with all that. Thought, 
it definitely got a little better. Uh, Florida kind of closed the half strong. Um, for the most part, gets it to 30-28. And then a little sluggish to start the second half. Uh, but, you know, let, let's back up before. What did you think of Florida's shot selection offensively, too? Uh, I mean, I didn't think it was great, even though they even had a couple, like they had a couple long twos fall off the, off the dribble. And uh, I didn't, uh, didn't love that. I mean, Keontae Johnson, <laughs> he was back to Keontae Johnson form and, and getting good shots at the rim. Uh, but I also did think Florida got some good looks at three that, uh, yeah. uh, that didn't fall. So right. uh, I would say that generally shot selection wasn't great, but at the same, I, I, well, sorry, I'll back it up. They did have some poor shot selection, but at the same time, a lot of it was at the end of clock. And I just think at that point, I'm there's a bit like shots that are bad shots. But when I when I do talk bad shot selection, it's usually like, hey, here's a bad shot with 15 seconds on the shot clock, so you yeah. got to something better. Where this was like bad shots, but they were at the end of the clock due to a possession not working. So um, I kind of classified differently. So um, as you should, so, statistically, so, yeah, I mean statistically, you want to get a shot up, right? So so I will say. Um, I'll say that I thought the shot quality was not great. I won't say the shot selection was was bad, if that makes sense. <laughs> no, I think that I think that's pretty fair. And and again, you know, you're way better off offensively with with well, <laughs> gosh, it's such a wholesale statement because a super bad shot can lead to like a run out. But at the end of a shot clock, traditionally, you're better getting a shot up than a dead ball shot clock violation. Like at least you give yourself a chance to get an offensive rebound to make a basket. It's pretty obvious. So the advantages of that, uh, at least within reason, um, you know, Eric, the, the second half for the Gators, you know, they did start making shots. So they start 11 from three, they end up seven of 23, which means seven of the last 12 went. Well, let's, uh, I mean, you got to start, let's look at another coaching adjustment that Florida made that I thought was, uh, really impressive. And this is after we talked about how Florida just doesn't uh, didn't run any plays for for Noah Locke over the yeah. He was shooting the ball really well. And then you see uh, you see tonight where they run that flare screen that set to get some two threes. And then they run a floppy set that was just like beautifully read by uh, by Noah Locke to run off the screen. Uh, uh-huh. Wonderful screen by Keontae Johnson who headhunted his man. Perfect screen. Uh, perfect pass. I think it was from Nemhard, wide open three from from Lockhart. So I think that was a great adjustment because I mean that was something I yeah. was not a big fan of was that Florida uh, didn't have sets to free up Noah Lock. And hey, look against Georgia, they they run three sets really, really, really well to get a shooter that in the first half Georgia was totally taking out of the game uh, to get to get him wide open on three looks. Uh, that was that was really impressive. So. Uh, definite props to uh, the coaching staff for, for drawing those up and uh, uh, definitely execution, big props to the team for execution. Cause especially that one like floppy set where Keontae or sorry, where Noah Locke starts under the rim and he can either run off the double screen on one side or the single screen on the, the other. And he went off yeah. the single screen. That was Keontae Johnson. Keontae Johnson headhunted his man perfectly on the screen. It was just beautiful. So uh, definite, uh, definite props there. Yeah, no, that's excellent, uh, excellent points, and I'm glad you brought up the uh, the actions for Noah Locke. More proof that obviously the staff is locked in the Florida basketball hour. But um, <laughs> the uh, the the defense in the second half too, you know, to hold Georgia to to 24 points, one of their lowest production halves of the season, bottom five production half uh, for Georgia on the season, and and more impressively, I thought was 11 turnovers forced. Yeah, and what made it impressive to me as well, I mean, uh, 
Well, one, I mean, there's a chance that someone listening to this was actually at the uh, the game because there seemed to be a lot of Florida fans that were at the game. So, hey, if you were there in, yeah. in Georgia, shout out to you. You guys were loud. Uh, but, hey, like for, for most of us watching on, on television, I did think one thing that was interesting on the uh, on the broadcast uh, was them talking about how uh, how Coach Crean and his team were really, uh, uh, really uh, focused on how they were going to attack Florida's 3-2 zone because, obviously, that's what allowed Florida to get back in the game in the first matchup. And then Florida played that 3-2 zone, and it was just – it had great effect. And just knowing that Georgia had really prepared for it and it still worked for Florida was, like, you know, extra satisfying. Right. Uh, but, I mean, that was a change that uh, that really worked and, and forced some uh, just, like, wild turnovers, like some, some particularly bad ones, which showed just, like, how out of sorts they were against Florida's zone. Yeah, no, uh, they – they were they were definitely a mess, and and to get a, anytime you can turn somebody over eleven times in one half, that's going to be uh, a good recipe for success. But still, you know, a forty six forty five game at the under eight media timeout with with uh, Georgia in the lead, and then uh, Nimhard going to the free throw line, coming back from the under media timeout. Nimhard makes both the free throws, and then the Gators get uh, three from Locke on the flare screen, a turnover. And then a free a three from Locke on the floppy, and then a uh, really nice play on an inbound pass uh, that I also thought was a good scout by the staff. Yeah, they were uh, they were locked in on both sides when it came to baseline uh, out of bounds. Like I mean, Noah or sorry, Deontay Johnson had that one steal defending a baseline out of bounds that was uh, super impressive. But yeah, uh, and then uh, offensively, Florida was getting uh, getting a lot of good looks. They they have that one set they run it probably more than anything i haven't actually like looked but hey that'll be an off-season article uh, <laughs> but uh where it's like usually uh they start kind of four flat and then keontae johnson usually uh he, he kind of flares to the free throw line and gets the pass and then it's the quick seal post up for blacks here uh they ran that to great effect and then they also have another uh, another baseline out of bounds that uh turns into a quick dribble handoff into a ball screen and and that uh it wasn't like uh, the first pass kind of like what you think of typically when you think of scoring off a, a baseline out of bounds, but it, it got a it got switches and, and some favorable matchups with Florida that worked, and uh, it, that was just something that uh, that was uh, that was definitely really effective in getting Florida some open looks, um, especially uh, it's a key moments like the play that uh, that you were describing. Yeah, I thought it was uh, obviously pretty pretty impressive to get that run, and then I thought it was interesting that that Florida makes the run. And, you know, Tom Crean doesn't use a timeout. Like, he waits on the media timeout. Yeah, which was uh, – it turned out to be pretty long between media timeouts and uh, uh, in this one. He uh, ran for quite a while with, like, a ton of subs on the bench. But, uh, yeah, I mean, people know uh, people know my <laughs> views on timeouts. So, anytime an opposing coach is going to let Florida go on a run like that when he's got timeouts in the bag, I mean, uh, I'll definitely take it. And uh, it was good that kind of Florida could play uh, could play through some of that uh, – let that momentum build, especially on the road, and uh, to be able to to push. Even they had some good pushes in transition, which like didn't uh, didn't result necessarily in you know easy buckets or layups. But I just thought like helped get into their offense a little bit earlier and just kind of helped their help their rhythm. And I think that a lot of that came from you know the momentum they were getting on the defensive side. Obviously, getting steals in the uh, in the three two zone helps you helps you run out. But uh, yeah, I mean it's just interesting that like. It, it definitely didn't feel like a 14-point game just because it was tight up to that under-eight timeout. But, uh, yeah, Florida just uh, caught that that wave right at the end and took it all the way to the top. 
Yeah, they, they did. And, and like I said, people know my thoughts on Tom Crean. So um, it's a bold strategy to not take a timeout in a home game when the game goes from you ahead by one to you down by nine and two minutes and 50 seconds. But, you know, you do you, Tom Crean, and you almost got bailed out because of the worst flagrant one call I've seen all season. Yeah, that was horrible. Uh, like, players getting under. It, it's just so interesting to you because we had to talk on this podcast like twice last year where Kavarius Hayes got undercut aggressively and it yeah. was just common fouls and they never even reviewed it for flagrant fouls because it just like didn't seem to be in their, the ref's mind that undercutting someone is extremely dangerous when they're in the air. So I, I certainly understand the severity of why someone getting undercut is is dangerous. And I absolutely think that undercuts should well not always be flagrant but i definitely think they should always get reviewed but i mean that pass was so poor and that's the only reason why there was contact like that wasn't dirty by Keontae johnson in the slightest it was just that pass was so bad so far behind uh behind the georgia player i forget who it was that he had to lean back in the air and then just like the slightest contact was uh obviously made for a bad fall and it was a bad fall and uh but it was just all about the fact that that was an uncatchable pass that was way behind him and i just don't fault Keontae Johnson whatsoever. And that is coming from someone who really hates undercut plays in basketball. But this was just not, a, this was not a dirty play. This was not really an undercut. This was a bad, bad pass that turned into a dangerous play. And I think they should put the flagrant foul on the guy who threw the pass, not Keontae Johnson. Yeah. I mean, it was going to clearly be a turnover. Um, you know, it was just absolutely atrocious. And then Xavier Wheeler hit the three and all of a sudden it was a five point game. But then Scotty Lewis, maybe with his best play of the night, uh, just attacks a close out and then makes a really good pass to Keontae Johnson, who who buries a, a triple. Yeah, uh, Scotty Lewis was, uh, you know, a little bit quiet, but he did have that play, and he had another, uh, you know, that other uh, baseline attacking closeout where he pumped on the one side of the rim and then brought it to the other and had the reverse layup because he's got that length and that that athleticism. And, uh, yeah, it was just kind of all coming together at the right time. Like, when uh, when Florida really needed to... Uh, to have a little bit of a run they got a they didn't just have a little bit of a run they had a big run and ended up with a big win and uh you know that really matters because that like i know it doesn't get talked about a ton but like the net factors in these offensive and defensive efficiencies and like well one thing to note was like you know florida's defense uh because of the way they played georgia who's actually a pretty good offensive team like probably better than you think uh they got up to 54th in defense which is a huge jump and they also jumped like five spots in ken palms um, offensive adjusted offensive efficiency, which is not like the official net sorting tool, but the net is something that's very similar. So, uh, so it's actually was really good that Florida had a big run and, and won comfortably like that. It, it matters that they won by fourteen and not by one or two. So uh, it all came together. But um, I will say, like whenever you get that kind of offense from uh, from Scotty Lewis generating it, uh, it's a little bit like found money because I really don't view him as someone right. kind of pivotal to the. To, to Florida's kind of regular scheme. Like if Florida's offense isn't working on a particular night, I'm not saying like, well, that's, you know, that's on Scotty Lewis because he's someone who I just don't really feel like is one of their primary initiators or creators. So uh, when he does catch the ball and make, make a great play like that, uh, yeah, it's just a, it's a huge boost. No, no question. Um, let's see. Listener questions, Eric or coach's corner. Which one do you want to do first? Oh, let's, uh, Let's do listener question and then then coach's corner, I suppose. All right, so Chomptown Gator, ATL Gator, wants to know, uh, where would you rank Tom Crean among SEC coaches? Ooh. 
what perhaps our, our, in the off, in the off season we should that is a fun question in the off season we should potentially just do a straight up uh yeah I, actually no that that would go quite poorly no um, we should do we should do I, a draft I, I, <laughs> a draft I, it's less offensive. yeah the only the only draft we've done is our uh, our street fight one, and where Tom Crean unfortunately did not make the cut. And uh, yeah, uh, you know he wouldn't make my cut in the the top echelon of, of coaches. Uh, um, I, I feel like, um, yeah, I, I would say, I would say he's a uh, he, uh, probably like lower middle of the pack for me. Yeah. Um, although I, I mean it's it's a little bit it's a little bit tough to say just because I I still feel like I'm not entirely sure what I think of his job at Indiana like. Uh, which is like funny because he was there for so long and I should have like a, a stronger opinion, but right. uh, I, I don't know. So I, I would say like, I, I don't know. I was going to say bottom of the like middle tier, but at the same time I look at like the bottom tier and I, I think I might want, so I'm actually going to say, uh, I'm actually going to say like lower. Yeah. I would say like the lower thirds of the league in, in, in coaches. Um, but uh, I, I don't know. We'll, we'll see. I, but yeah, I'll, I'll say lower third. I like it. I like that. Uh, that's a good response. It works for me. Um, whew, that was a fun one. So we have uh, T-Town Gator, uh, which I assume is Tallahassee. I don't know. Uh, T-Town Gator wants to know, who is your SEC coach of the year? Oh, for me, I mean, I think it's got to be Buzz Williams. Like, okay. I, I just okay. really thought that Texas A&M was going to be a, a disaster, as, as many people did. Uh, and uh, just the fact that they have stayed relevant, they almost had a big win tonight against. Uh, they did. They beat Auburn. They did. I'd be, okay. I was. Uh, I had to. Start, so I mean, uh, Florida's game ended. I quickly did my write up at Gator Country, and then we started recording this podcast. And at the time, Texas A&M was uh, just blowing the lead. So anyway, so big win for Texas A&M. Uh, yeah. So I, I mean, I honestly thought like, like I think that they're worse this year than Vanderbilt was last year. I like. I honestly think their talent is worse. Um, and I do think that the league was tough, much tougher last year, and that's what contributes to Vanderbilt not winning a game. Uh, but I just really don't love that Texas A&M team, and just the fact that they are—I uh, I mean, if they won tonight, they're probably like sixth or seventh or eighth or somewhere in that range. And I just think that's a really impressive job. So I will say Buzz Williams. Okay, I like the job Buzz did a lot. Uh, he would be my second place vote. I know Vanderbilt's ten and twenty, but they're three hundred and forty-first in luck, Eric. Um, so I kind of feel like Jerry Stackhouse has actually done a pretty good job too, especially since the Neesmith injury. Um, mm. You know, I like, I wouldn't vote for him for SEC coach of the year, but since we're shouting out buzz for doing kind of far more with less, I think, I think Jerry Stackhouse has done a nice job. And I like, like you, I, I like some of the concepts they use, especially on defense. I think those are going to make it easy to recruit. Um, for me, it's John Calipari. Uh, I know it's boring, right? Um, but, you know, I know they lost to Tennessee the other night. Uh, kind of a crazy collapse. You never see them blow that big a lead <laughs> at home. Uh, but, you know, I just think that, like, when I saw that team in December, you know, I didn't, I didn't know if that team was going to win 20 games. I'll be real honest. I thought they probably would get the 20 wins, maybe, you know, last night on senior night against Tennessee. But like when I saw them play Utah and like trail the whole game and lose, I was like, I don't know how good that team is, man. They can't score. And now they become, you know, a pretty efficient offensive team. I think they're getting better defensively. And I really don't think anybody wants to play them in the NCAA tournament. So 
you know, kind of boring, but keep in mind that Billy Donovan didn't win. You know, Billy Donovan didn't win an SEC coach of the year award until after he had won two national championships. So sometimes when you're an elite coach and it's just sort of established that you are, you don't win coach of the year. Yeah, it's true. And that is kind of like, what's. it's funny that people really look at like coach of the year when really it's like people interpret it functionally as like what coach says the most with the least. And I mean, that was what I just did with, saying buzz williams but i do think that that's just that's a really trend, good but... compelling argument for buzz williams though yeah and no, i mean honestly i would listen to an argument for uh for bruce pearl honestly like seeing what auburn lost last year and to see uh-huh. that they like didn't miss much of a lose much of a step i would say that like there's a decent argument for for him to uh probably you know you can't lose the texas a&m and, and potential coach of the year uh buzz williams but uh yeah i just uh i would have maybe before that listened to an argument for for bruce pearl but uh uh, yeah, I would. It'll be it'll be really interesting because I, I I think there's uh, you know a couple guys that the voters could could go with and it wouldn't be like wouldn't be shocking would be would be defensible. Yeah, I mean Auburn has lost four of six and you know but some of that I think uh, two of those losses were without Isaac Okoro. So yeah, I mean I think you could actually make a pretty compelling argument for them as well. Um, those are really the only three that that I would include in that conversation. I always feel like Frank Martin, like you, gets the most out of his team. I don't, it's not like coach of the, it's, I don't think he can win a coach of the year award, Eric, until like they don't do what they do every December though. If that's, <laughs> is that, is that unfair? Or? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think it's the way that like, as much as it's, I don't know, as much as it like maybe could be unfair. I think that you've just seen like quite the history of the way teams or sorry, voters vote. And that has kind of established the the guidelines of the way the awards should be interpreted. And for that reason, I don't think it's unfair to say what you said. Yeah, so, Stetson's uh, re- Stetson's really bad, man. Like you can't lose to Stetson. Like not you. Unless that was really just setting up his case for you know what you were saying about Kentucky being yeah. so poor in December. You know that was Frank Martin saying like, yeah, I'm gonna lose to Stetson, then I'm gonna be better and help my candidacy for uh, for coach <laughs> of the year. Oh my. that's a bold <laughs> that's a bold strategy. Let's see, let's see what his let's see what his contract is for uh, for winning coach of the year. Maybe he gets a maybe he gets a big boost if he wins coach of the year. In the <laughs> let's see how it pays off for him. Uh, Sarah in Tampa wants to know. She says two parter. One, uh, will a fourth consecutive trip to the NCAA tournament silence the hive? I'll answer that one. No. <laughs> Did you have anything you wanted to add to that, or are we good? <laughs> Definitely no. (laughs) And two, uh, do you think Florida can win the SEC tournament? It would be nice to win another tournament this season, considering they've won one already. Sarah with the early Mike White defense. Like, we haven't even lost in the second round yet, Sarah. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I mean, I I do think that saying that Florida should be in the the NCAA tournament every year is is not an unfair – no, like I, I think that's no. that's a very fair uh, that like that should be the bar. Florida should make it every year. So for that reason, yeah, um, getting in four straight years is is probably not, a, and I don't think it should be enough to to be the sole defense of a of a coach. And I think that also there's got to be a an, an element of you know if you get in as a ten seed and you know Florida as a nine or an eight, that's that also plays a role. Maybe if if Florida was a top five or top four seed, those four years that would be different, but. Um, in terms of uh, Florida winning the SEC tournament, I think absolutely they can win. 
Like, I, I just really am not scared by any matchup. And I don't want to sound like arrogant Florida fan when I say that. Right. So I'm not right. saying, I'm, not saying I, I'm going to favor Florida to win every matchup. Uh, but there's definitely just not a team where I say, wow, if Florida matches up with Kentucky, there's just no way they can win. Or if Florida matches up with uh, whoever Florida is. Like, like, you just look at the, you, you look at, you know, Florida's, Florida's playing Kentucky, if, Kentucky on Saturday. And at home, Florida is a four-point favorite. So that's going to be on a neutral floor. Uh, you know, a fairly tight game as it should be. Uh, you look at LSU, we know that Florida can beat them. Auburn's next in the standings. You know that they can play them and, uh, and beat them. So, so I just look at the top teams of the SEC and there's just no one that terrifies me. So for, for, uh, for that reason, I think Florida absolutely could win the SEC tournament. And I would, am I, would I pick them when I fill out my SEC tournament bracket? I'm, I'm not totally sure, but uh, uh, it's, it would not be a shock whatsoever if Florida wins. I, I don't think, what do you think, Neil? Uh, it wouldn't at all surprise me if, Florida, if this Florida team won. It also wouldn't surprise me if they lost in the quarterfinal. Like, I, right? Um, I, I, I almost think they won't lose in the quarterfinal. But then again, like they could play Tennessee in the quarterfinal, and because Tennessee has Eve Pond, and because I feel like what's the kid's name? Scavote. Oh, Santiago Viscovi. Yeah, like He's I just big fan. Yeah, he could go off. Like, you know, he just looks like a dude that, like, could just drop 25 for, like, two straight days in Nashville and Tennessee could play in the SEC tournament final. There's always that kind of story. So, you know, and for Florida, you know, yeah, I mean, I guess it could be the Keontae Johnson show and and that would be things that would happen. By the way, I kind of like recording this. When I do listener questions, one advantage of it is that I get to see what's trending in Florida. (laughs) And right now, Mike White and Chris Chioza are trending in Florida. So shout out to Chris Chioza for murdering someone on live NBA television tonight. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was nice. Whew. That was a nice that was a nice treat to to, uh, to see on Twitter uh, right before we uh, right before we did the podcast. So that the was Eric, the Eric Fawcett. He left him in the cement tweet. Was very good, and then. We have Mike White, which is always it's always fun when Mike White trends because like it goes from in this in this kind of game it's like you know everybody loves Mike in the second half and uh, Florida when Florida's scoring points and running good sets near the Florida bench. <laughs> yeah, that's uh, that was that was an interesting note that I know a bunch of people where they mentioned on the broadcast and obviously what happened against Tennessee too. Yeah, and I mean, I, 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 I mean, one thing I would, I would obviously, you know, point out that I, I've had long advocated for Florida to use timeouts in the first half more often, and uh-huh. knowing that, uh, uh, knowing that they seem to be a lot more comfortable getting information from the bench in the second half, that would kind of, kind of point <laughs> that out as well. But um, oh, there's a uh, Davion Mitchell with the uh, uh, from Baylor with the uh, the retweet of my uh, my Chris Chioza tweet. So apparently he's a fan. Um, great, uh, but. Uh, he got murdered by Chris Chioza when he was a freshman at Baylor. <laughs> yeah. no, fresh, freshman at Auburn. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how things come around. But uh, yeah, uh, I don't remember what I was talking about now. Sorry, but uh, yeah, we're just having fun. This is a fun pod. Matt. We're having a good time. Oh, um, I, I searched. I searched Mike White on Twitter just to see that was a that was a mistake. But oh yeah, yeah no, I do think that definitely Florida, Florida in the second half getting those information like uh, is it, it is an interesting note that probably doesn't get talked about enough because I mean that matters especially like 
uh, talking about like these neutral site games coming up in, in postseason play. Uh, yeah. And for a team like Florida that is going to be fairly set reliant, like I would, I would have to expect them to continue that. Uh, that is going to matter. So uh, that is something to kind of watch. I mean, I know someone tweeted at, tweeted at us and said like, you know, what's the, uh, the difference in offensive efficiency from first to second half. Um, I, I actually don't know how to get that number. <laughs> Quite frankly, I tried to look and none of the sites that I use, I can break that down. Maybe you can Neil, or maybe uh, Matt yeah. has something like that, but um, I can't, but it, I, it would be really interesting, interesting to know because there definitely seems to be uh, be an element to that. Yeah. So uh, new daddy wanted to know, um, do you, do you have an NBA comparison for Keontae Johnson? Either of you, he said, I kind of think Gerald Henderson, uh, Raja Bell. Yeah. Uh, Ra- Raja Bell's an interesting one. I probably see Bell is a little bit more of a shooter, which I mean, I, I know that Keontae Johnson has shot the ball uh, is really well, but I, but I do see that, you know, a lot of his numbers are, uh, are from the corner, which is, which is totally great. But, uh, you know, projecting to NBA range, you'd probably want to see him make shots, um, above the break, uh, a little bit more like, uh, but I mean, I do see like, uh, you know, I see uh, at the low end, I mean, I'm a Raptors fan, so I see Rondé Hollis Jefferson and I see someone who, uh, is like Keontae Johnson who can't, but uh, except Rondé Hollis Jefferson can't make shots at all. So I see the fact <laughs> that, you know, Rondé Hollis Jefferson is, is someone playing minutes on, uh, on the Raptors right now, a really good team in the East and, and he doesn't even make shots. I, I, I kind of see him in, in, in that type of mold. I, I, I do think he's. Like I, I think Keontae Johnson's offensive game is is really great. There's there's no question. Uh, but I, I I just probably just project like uh, like for most players, if you're not a, a star when you get to the league, you're going to be more of a defender and someone who uh, hits open threes. So uh, yeah, that's uh, that's probably uh, probably someone like that. There, there's definitely probably better answers out there. Uh, I don't have to think about that one, but uh, I, I think we're going to see more and more guys like uh, like Keontae Johnson who uh, can kind of make up for. Uh, their lack of fight with just leaping ability and strength. Right, right. I mean, like, Admiral Schofield had that linebacker frame, but I don't think that – and, I mean, like, I'm not going to knock his athleticism. He's fine as an athlete. I just It's just not like where Keontae's athleticism is. That's all. Um, yeah. I've really got to find a better comparison, but uh, I, I've got to look at uh, some NBA NBA wings and, and come up with a better one. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I've got to say, like uh, – as a little bit of a humble brag, I, I suppose um, I did have a, have an NBA scout reach out to me the other day, and he was more wanting. To, nice. Uh, he did. He didn't more want to want to talk Scotty Lewis, but the conversation did at one point very much swing to uh, swing to Keontae Johnson. And uh, uh, oh, I literally remember in the conversation. I mean, I, I I would say like this is the top end, but I remember talking to him and saying how uh, how PJ Tucker is used in Houston right now. Uh, I think that's a lot of Keontae Johnson, like six foot five knocks down threes, except Keontae Johnson can attack off the dribble more than a PJ Tucker. So uh, that was something I used, but uh, yeah, it was just interesting to see what, uh, what, if a team had kind of really uh, taken notes of, of what Keontae Johnson can do. And just one thing I was talking to him about was like, when I see the NBA game, like I know people want to talk about like making shots is always the big thing, but I think it's all about making plays in space. And that's just something that we've seen from Keontae Johnson over and over and over again. Like, Yes, against Tennessee, Eve Pons was able to slow him down. Uh, but that's, you know, one of the rare players in college basketball that has, like, like he's one of the guys, Pons is, that's going to step into the NBA and instantly be one of the best athletes. So, you know, saying that, like, oh, this guy in college stopped Deontay Johnson, that doesn't really bother me. So 
I, I just see the way that Keontae Johnson can make plays in space. And, and yeah, I, I think he's going to be an NBA player. And uh, if it was like, you know, maybe a little bit of a hot take, I, I would say, I mean, I, I think he's going to be the best NBA player of anyone on the, uh, the Gators roster right now. Yeah, he's pretty good. So there's a blog called Old Man Basketball that I like a lot. And um, he had tabbed Keontae Johnson as one of his five breakout stars. And he updated the five breakout stars of 2020. And he obviously a Florida basketball hour listener, I think. And um, <laughs> and he uh, he updated it. And he's, he like box quotes himself. And he says, Keontae Johnson is an undersized power forward. I actually think he could play small ball center in the NBA. He's listed at 6'5", but is built like an NFL linebacker. His vertical is also 42 inches. Even without that, recording his explosion on tape is not up for debate. On offense, I thought Johnson was a little limited. My assumption was that he was a straight-line driver with little wiggle who would just jump stop all the time. That is not true. He is an explosive first step, not an average one. He draws fouls at an elite clip. Johnson does a good game play in the game low. He also can beat his defender and create distance with his shoulders and broad chest and finish around the bucket. His catch and shoot is much better than it was on film last year. I thought he was more of a ball mover on offense. That is not true either. He's actually a better passer with movement, at least when I've watched him. I don't know if he has the upside of other returning upperclassmen or if he maxes out as an NBA high role role player, but he is definitely going to play in the National Basketball Association. That's super well said. I, I think he nailed nailed everything there. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, you look at you look at the Houston Rockets with like PJ Tucker at the five, and then you say, yeah. "Hey, why why couldn't Keontae Johnson play the five? Like, I don't think that'd be the best the best role for him. But hey, like if you're a team that's looking for uh, looking to recreate the the Rockets, kind of what they're doing with uh, with lineups like that, and you're looking for the next like PJ Tucker, like there's not a lot of guys out there that like there's some guys that have that physicality at that that size and. Uh, but there's not a lot of ones who can make threes like Keontae Johnson has with uh, with a pretty good sample now. And uh, he, obviously Johnson also has uh, a lot more athleticism than a lot of the like, like if you're looking for these like smaller guys that can uh, like the in the PJ Tucker mold, that's, you know, athleticism is usually not the uh, not one of their traits, but uh, but Johnson brings that. So, uh, yeah, I just I, I really do think he's going to be a pro and someone that uh, that I'm going to really enjoy watching in the NBA. Yeah, it was interesting, like how many hearts left out of their chest tonight when Keontae Johnson referenced next year uh, in the post-game interview on SEC Network. I did not see that. Oh, yeah. So (laughs) he was like, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to become a better leader for the freshmen, you know, so that we can lead next year. And I was like, yes, yes, please lead next year. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That's what I love to hear. I I, I mean, I want him to do what's best for him. Yeah, of course. Uh, But – um, for sure, and you know, Selfishly. truthfully, I, I I really do think that that <laughs> I, would be maybe coming out this year, uh, yeah. for sure, and we'll see because I I would almost be certain he's going to test the waters and and see yeah, what he's happens. Gonna. But uh, yeah, I mean, that would have me super excited because I mean, like, man, if he comes back, like that that would be massive. By the way, he should test the waters because you're allowed to, and it'd be ridiculous if he didn't after the season he's had. Um, so there's a there's another. Do what's best for you, Keontae. Uh, but he, I'm sure he'll test the waters, and his he has a great family, and, and they'll make the right decision for him. Uh, we'll close with Coach's Corner, which is something that I kind of noted off air to Eric before we started recording. But 
Uh, last year we saw Florida do it, and they really played and kind of found their groove this way. Uh, but but Florida has really shortened their bench, haven't they, Eric? Yeah, it means uh, tonight you don't see uh, you don't see Omar Payne at all, and then you see Quez Glover for three minutes. Um, I, I'm going to be honest; I don't even remember seeing Glover out there. Maybe it was I like it just I just like didn't consciously really realize it. So obviously he didn't get uh, get a huge role and. Uh, yeah, that's something that uh, that we haven't seen yet this season, but uh, it definitely shows that uh, that things are getting pretty serious here late in the season, and and White's starting to show who he uh, who he trusts. So uh, I'm someone who does think generally that that depth is 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 overrated. Like I, I really do think that like having six or seven guys, like you look at the teams that really do well in, in postseason play and in March Madness, it's not like wow they're their eight to 12 guys on the bench really outplayed the other teams, eight to 12. It's, it's almost always what team's best five played better than the other team's best five. And right. figuring out who that is, 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 is huge. And um, obviously you don't want to get murdered when that five isn't together. But uh, yeah, I, I would say I am someone who thinks that it's that, that depth probably is not as big of a deal as I think a lot of people make it out to be. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think we do kind of have, I like, do you have any thoughts or anything about, uh, about Omar Payne kind of falling out of a, uh, falling out of the rotation these last couple of games? Well, yeah, I mean, it's interesting. I, I don't – I think some of it has to do with the growth of Jason Jatobo. I think some of it has to do with the fact that, you know, Dante's calf injury is healed. And, and uh, I think the staff has always valued Dante's physicality. I know, and again, I, you know, I, everybody probably thinks I don't like Omar Payne, and I think he's going to be fantastic. But Dante is so much better in pick and roll defense, and you know, at least the way that Florida defends it, right? So, I think I think there's something to that. Yeah, I mean, I, I've obviously been someone who's advocated for for Payne playing more. Uh, I, I will say, I still think that their best offense, like their best offensive center outside of when Kerry Blackshear is there, of course, uh, is Omar Payne out of out of I those agree. three. But, yep. uh, and I do think that, uh, you know, just again, teaser to Friday's article. Uh, yeah, Payne has been not as good in pick and roll defense. But uh, I, I will say, I think that this was the first game, like this, uh, this Georgia game tonight uh, that we're podcasting right after. I, I do think this was the first time where I really wasn't ever thinking to myself, uh, man, I really wish Payne was in the game. Just right. because I really do think that Jatobo and, and, and Bassett played really well. Like some of the other games, it wasn't like those guys were playing super poorly, but right. they weren't playing well enough that I was like, "Like, man, why are they? Why are these guys getting so much more run than Payne?" Um, I will say I thought that Jatobo played really well when he was in, and, and Bassett played really well when he was in, and for that reason, it wasn't as uh, it wasn't as noticeable to be like, "Man, why is Payne not in there?" But uh, you know, I still I look at the the lineup data from when Florida was playing some of their best basketball and it involved Payne. Um, I think that uh, what he adds is a as a shot blocker. And, and I do think offensively, I think he's the best screen setting big man Florida has um, obviously his work on the offensive glass. Like uh, I still think he's the best, uh, the best offensive center of the backup centers, of course. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's just, it is interesting to see that he, uh, that yeah, he hasn't been trusted as much, but I think the points you make about pick and roll defense are uh, probably a big part of it. Yeah. I mean, I look, I, I think it's, it's interesting to me because as you approach tournament play, a lot of teams do this. A lot of elite teams will shorten their bench. A lot of good teams will shorten their bench. Tournament teams do that. And, and Florida did it last year, had success with it. But I also think Florida has the capability to do both, which also makes them a dangerous team in the SEC tournament, to be honest. Because, like, 
if things are going okay in the quarterfinal, they can play Omar Payne a little more. They can play Jason Jatobo a little more. So you're a little fresher for that game the next day, um, which I think is useful. But I do think, you know, we just saw tonight, uh, Tennessee is playing five guys 35 minutes or more. They have literally no bench, um, more or less, right? They have a, they, you know, their top bench player against the Gators played six minutes. So gives you an idea of what's going on there. And, and then, so, so there's other teams that have it in much more dire straits, but four to six man has functionally become Trey man. And then it's whatever, excuse me, backup center is the flavor of the night. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, Florida goes from having so few centers these last couple of seasons to, uh, to having a bunch to the point where they all can't uh, <laughs> get that many minutes. But uh, yeah, I am still interested in, in postseason play. if Because uh, the one thing is that Omar Payne is really the only player that offers Florida rim protection. They just don't really get it from their their other guys, other than Dante Bassett, who protects the rim by taking charges, uh, right. which I think is very important to note. But I just wonder if there's a point where uh, if Florida just you know isn't making shots and they just like need to get a spark by getting some offensive rebounds, or uh, if there's teams that are just getting downhill on them more and more that they they need some some rim protection. Or I I, I mean to be honest, I think that I can't. I, I might have to try to find some film to see if Florida or uh, to see if Payne has played any of the the three, two zone, but I, I would think he might be better at it than some of the other, the other big men. Cause that's the one thing about the three, two zone is the hardest position. Like the players that are in the toughest position are the, uh, the two players that are usually the big men that are yeah. playing the back of the defense. And right. uh, I, I would think that, you know, Omar Payne would be a little bit, uh, a little bit more fleet of foot than, uh, than maybe some of the other backup centers. <laughs> and, uh, certainly has the length to, to close out more than like a Dante Bassett does. So, um, you know, maybe he, plays well in that defense but who knows maybe he played poorly in that defense in practice and that's why there's yeah there's there's just many reasons why it might not work but i just i do wonder if uh it, it comes to a time in the postseason where where pain kind of comes back on the scene and has like a five for five night where he just you know gets five offensive rebounds and dunks them all back and and right. has three block shots and uh, has two steals with his length like i i just i, I kind of think that that might be coming but you know who knows but it could be saturday against against kentucky i mean we've talked about how it's a different type of kentucky team right now that you know they're a lot smaller than they usually are but uh, ej montgomery has been playing a little better so so they're starting to get kind of the dual bigs which is very helpful to nick richards it's another reason i think that they're very capable of of winning the ncaa tournament um you know i wish that they had a for their fans, I, I would say if I were a Kentucky fan, I would wish that they had a second scorer that they really could rely on. I know some people think it's Tyrese Maxey. I don't really trust his shot enough. Um, you know, he's going to be a fantastic pro, I think. But neither here nor there might be a good game for Omar Payne to bust back on the scene. And then senior day, obviously, uh, Kerry Blackshear, um, maybe Dante Bassett. I know he's going to graduate uh, with honors in May. Congrats, Dante and uh, be eligible to grad transfer if he wants. If he doesn't, I'm sure that the program would love to have him back on the team. Yeah, that's probably a discussion for uh, for the postseason, but uh, uh-huh. uh, great for you to point out that, uh, yeah, they graduate with honors. That's, uh, uh, yeah, that's obviously something that uh, deserves celebration. And, uh, uh, I mean, I, I know he won't be walking, but, uh, you know, we've got to, got to probably point out that, that Gorjak Yak is going to graduate as well. Oh, yeah, that's um, right. You know, he won't be there, but uh, – you know, I do think it's worth acknowledging the, you know, his time with the program as well. So uh, definitely not like a typical kind of feeling senior night, I, w- I would say, with, for Florida. But, uh, 
uh, or senior morning, I suppose, uh, or afternoon for that game. It's the early one. Yeah, the early uh, game, but, uh, one p.m. Uh, but yeah, uh, it's still always interesting to see how how teams kind of uh, how teams kind of respond to uh, uh, to the energy, just like you were talking about with Georgia on their senior night. So, uh, and it's always you know whenever you play Kentucky at home, that's fun, and whenever you play them uh, the last game of this, uh, the regular season, that's uh, that's fun too. It will be. Uh, we will have a show after it. Thank you all for listening. Um, and I hope you uh, enjoyed this show as much as we did. See you later.